Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we have another wedding episode that is, once again, not about dresses or cakes or flowers or any other stereotypically wedding-y thing. Uh... So a big chunk of my wedding guest list is going to be traveling to where the wedding is happening from out of state. So I was putting together a list of things to do and places to see in the surrounding area so that folks don't have to sort of show up for a wedding and then fly back home again after doing nothing else. And one of the places on the list was Guilford Courthouse National Military Park. So to be totally clear, I have been to Guilford Courthouse National Military Park. Uh, Although growing up, people from around there just called it the Guilford Battleground. And I know for sure that my grandfather took me there at least one time when I was a child, and I may also have gone there on school field trips. My grandparents spent the last years of their lives living in a condo that was literally across the street, but my brain had jettisoned literally everything about it, (laughs) except for the fact that there's a big statue of Brigadier General Nathaniel Green on horseback, which when you're a small child is extremely imposing. I was like, I have no idea what even war this battle was from, which is very embarrassing to admit, having grown up within, you know, 45 minutes of it and been to it before. Um, I don't know if you experience this also, Holly, but we talk about so many different things in the in the podcast that it's like it's like a new wave of history comes into my brain and just forces the old wave out the back. Oh, for sure. And I think yeah. when it's an area you've grown up with, sometimes there's just this sort of weird familiarity blinders that happen where you stop seeing it. You know what I mean? Like totally. you, you don't think about it so much. <laughs> That's the place you turn right to go to the thing. It's not, you forget that right. it actually has its own significance. <laughs> yes. So to refresh my own memory and to, you know, tell everybody else on what was actually a really pivotal battle in the Revolutionary War, we are going to talk about the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, which took place on March 15th of 1781. For those not already steeped in American Revolutionary War history, or maybe you have just forgotten it, no shame in that. We're all taking in lots of information. Uh, the Revolutionary War started in April of 1775 after a prolonged period of increasing tensions between Great Britain and its American colonies. There were a lot of factors that went into it. The colonies were paying taxes but not being represented in the government. The taxes themselves were also quite unpopular. Colonists were required to house and feed British troops, which they did not like. It went on and on and on. And if none of this sounds familiar to you, you can go listen to our past episode, 13 Reasons for the American Revolution, and you will get all of the details. So when the war actually started, on one side was Great Britain and the colonists who were loyal to the crown. And we're going to call those the loyalists. On the other side were colonists who supported supported the idea of being independent from Britain also known as the Patriots. The Patriots established the Continental Army, which really was more like a collection of all the individual colonies' armies at the Second Continental Congress in 1775. And George Washington was its commander-in-chief. Allied with the Patriots in North America were France, a few Native American tribes, and enslaved Africans, many of whom had been promised their freedom in exchange for fighting. And the Loyalist forces included hired troops from Germany, colloquially known as the Hessians, uh, many more Native American tribes, and other enslaved Africans who had similarly been promised their freedom. 
People who had been previously enslaved also fought on both sides. So even though pedants will insist that everyone was British at this point, so this episode will be easy for listeners to follow and not super repetitive, we are going to call the Patriots and their allies Americans from time to time, while also calling the Loyalists and their allies the British. So everybody is on the same page. Uh, we're also not going to get into the labels of Whig and Tory because those have entirely different meetings in places that aren't the United States. The region of what's now the United States that most often comes to mind in Revolutionary War history is New England. The Sons of Liberty threw tea overboard in Boston. The first battles were also in Massachusetts in April of 1775. Northern resistance leading up to the war and northern battlegrounds usually get a lot of attention in history classes on our side of the pond. Even the final battle and surrender in Yorktown are toward the northern part of the American South. And a lot of the action before 1778 really did take place in the northern colonies, along with parts of what's now Canada. But in the autumn of 1778, the situation in the northern colonies had become something of a stalemate. So, you know, at at that point... The, the war had been going on for about three years. The British started turning their attention to the South. The idea was that they would take the South, rally the support of Southerners who were loyal to the monarchy, along with as many enslaved Africans as they could find and free and then recruit. And then they would retake the North and end the war with the remaining, uh, with the colonies remaining part of British territory. To that end, Britain captured the port cities of Savannah, Georgia, on December 29, 1778, and after several other battles in the South, the port of Charleston, South Carolina, in the spring of 1780. The siege at Charleston in particular was devastating to the American forces in the South, with the British forces capturing 3,000 men and incurring a loss of only about 250 killed and wounded from within their own ranks. So the Patriots particularly the Southern Patriots, were really reeling. And the Loyalists really wanted to finish the job. So to talk about where this led the two sides from this point, we're going to talk for a moment about who was leading both of these armies. In command of the army on the Patriot side was Major General Nathaniel Green. He was born in Rhode Island in 1742, and he had grown up a member of the Religious Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers. Before becoming part of the military, he served in the Rhode Island legislature, where he advocated for independence from Britain. Although pacifism is really closely associated with Quaker beliefs, Green had been interested in military strategy and tactics from a very early age. And he actually wound up being expelled from a Quaker meeting after uh, attending a military parade. In the fall of 1774, when he was 32 and the threat of war with Britain was really looming, he helped to organize a militia in Rhode Island, which was called the Kentish Guards. Because he had always walked with a limp, he wasn't considered to be officer material, and he was made a private. Green eventually worked his way up to becoming a brigadier general in the Continental Army. He played a part in several Revolutionary War battles, including the Battle of Trenton, which we talk about in our previous episode on the Hessians. His strategic skills and performance in battle led to his becoming one of George Washington's most trusted officers. So when Washington needed someone to secure the South after the fall of Charleston in 1880, General Green was the man he sent to do it. Leading the British forces in the South was Charles Cornwallis, who was born in London, England in 1738. 
Uh, he had many other titles, which I was originally going to read out, but let's just say he was an obvious member of the British aristocracy. And although he wound up leading British forces against the Americans, he actually had a lot of sympathies for the colonists and their frustrations with the British government. He was, for example, one of only five peers to vote against the Stamp Act, which was a tax act that the colonists pretty strenuously objected to. All told, he was also a more experienced military man than Green was, having become an ensign at age 18, served as captain in the Seven Years' War, and spent three years serving in Germany before being promoted to lieutenant colonel. Cornwallis was summoned to North America and promoted to Major General in 1775. Once he was in North America, he also was part of several of the Revolutionary War's most well-known battles, including Trenton, Brandywine, and the capture of Charleston in 1780. He was actually second in command at that last battle, and afterward he was left in command of all the forces in the South. And this kind of brings us up to the run-up to the Battle of Guilford Courthouse itself. And we are going to talk about that. But first, if Tracy's cool with it, we will have a brief word from one of the sponsors that keeps this show going. So General Green's task in defending the South from the British was enormous. The Continental Army and the various state and local militias that fed into it were essentially brand new. And a lot of the men had no military experience at all. Although there had been plenty of other armed conflicts in North America before this point, along with the fact that a lot of people just needed to defend themselves from various things using firearms. Uh, this was essentially a brand new nation's very first attempt at waging an all-out war. George Washington himself had never even been in command of a large army in this way, and the patriots themselves were very poorly equipped with uniforms that were cobbled together if they existed at all. In the hilarious words of BritishBattles.com, the Americans dressed as best they could. That's such a bless their hearts moment. <laughs> it's got all this detail about all of the various types of uniforms that the various uh, British forces wore, depending on where they were from and what they were doing. And then it's like, the Americans had blue coats on and a bunch of other rubbish. It doesn't actually say rubbish. They tried. <laughs> on top of all of that, since the Patriots had lost Georgia and South Carolina and losses had been heavy at a number of British victories, there were just not all that many men left. So General Green's strategy was this. Rather than fortifying some location and waiting at it to defend it, or uh, rather than just going to meet the British in a prolonged battle, he kept moving his forces perpetually northward, northward, and he would fight these brief battles before strategically moving back. So the Continental Army and the militia supporting them weren't really used to fighting in this way. They were not used to having to just keep up this relentless, fast-paced migration, basically. So it forced the British to abandon some of their munitions, and it basically wore them out in order to try to keep up. In March of 1718, Green stopped at the out-of-the-way location of Guilford Courthouse and prepared to battle. The courthouse was situated in rolling hills and surrounded by a combination of fields and woods. And this gave Green several potential vantage points on which to arrange his men. At this point in history, battles were largely being fought with the opposing soldiers stretched out in lines. And this was for two main reasons. One was that some of the men were armed with smoothbore rifles, which were not very accurate. So having lots of men in a line with each other fire at the same time made it more likely that they were going to hit something in front of them. 
The other reason is that it was much, much easier for a line of men tightly packed together and armed with bayonets to resist the cavalry. So soldiers on horseback could very easily cut down soldiers who were by themselves or in small groups. But horses were not really eager to charge at line, a big, thick line of bayonet-bearing men. So Green organized his 4,400 men into three lines. The first that the British would encounter was about 1,000 men, primarily North Carolina militia, arranged behind a split-rail fence. And the fence made a convenient support that they could use to steady their weapons so that they could aim better. Dragoons and riflemen flanked the first line with orders to fall back as the fight progressed so that they could defend the other lines. The second line was about 350 yards behind that and was primarily manned with about 850 Virginia militia. Another 400 or so yards behind the Virginia militia was General Green himself, along with the regular Continental Army. And we're going to talk about this battle in terms of these three lines. Uh, But there were much smaller uh, ongoing clashes and skirmishes in between the lines that went on through the whole day. General Cornwallis's men had been on the march, and they were tired and they were hungry. General Green had actually considered attacking them while they were en route, but that had gone poorly for the Patriots in other battles, so he decided against that plan. And rather than allowing his forces to rest up before the battle, Cornwallis pressed on to attack Green once he heard Continental forces were at the courthouse, skirmishing with Patriots at various points along the way. As generals, Cornwallis and Green really had very different strategies. Cornwallis was kind of like a bulldozer and would just perpetually advance. Green, on the other hand, would attack and then he would fall back and regroup and then he would attack again and sometimes just strategically retreat to preserve his army. And in this battle in particular, Green used this difference in their strategy to a huge advantage. As the British moved into a clearing, both sides fired artillery volleys. Then the first line of North Carolina militia opened fire. Their first volley was extremely effective, thanks in part to their use of that fence rail that we mentioned to steady their aim. As the British pressed forward with bayonets, some of the militia did fire a second shot, but others fled and didn't return to the battle. As a side note, there are lots of different stories about how North Carolina got the nickname of the Tar Heel State. And one of them was that the North Carolina Fighting Force was so dedicated to battle that it was like they had tar on their heels. Was not this one. Because some of the guys who fled did not come back. The fence proved, not surprisingly, to be an obstacle for the advancing British troops, as did the cavalry units that had been flanking that first line. The surviving first wave of British troops split off to deal with the cavalry, while reinforcements moved in through the center and cleared the fence line. Once they did, they found the second line of Virginia militia waiting for them in the trees along a ridge. There was a heavy firefight between the British troops and the second line before that second line fell back to reinforce the Continental Army. Like the Virginia militia had been, the Continental Army was arranged on a ridge, was also reinforced with cannons. The British had to approach this vantage point from across an open field, which is basically just a killing field. So once again, the Loyalists took very heavy losses as they fought their way toward the Continental Army on this ridge. As the British got into hand-to-hand combat with the Continental Army, the Continental Cavalry came in, taking advantage of every opportunity to cut them down. Eventually, General Cornwallis fired grape shot from his cannons to stop the cavalry charge, even though that meant losses to his own side as well. 
At this point, General Green removed all of the remaining Patriot forces from the field and retreated to Troublesome Ironworks, which is the best name I have ever heard, and camped there. This retreat meant that according to the conventions of war at that time, General Cornwallis was the winner of this battle. But General Cornwallis had lost more than a quarter of his army along with more than half of his officers, while the Patriots, on the other hand, had only lost about 6% of theirs. So while the Battle of Guilford Courthouse is on the books as a British win, it came at a great cost. The battle was really a turning point in the American Revolution. General Cornwallis fell back to Wilmington, and when faced with the choice of either retreating to British-held Charleston or pressing ahead, he took his troops to Virginia. He wasn't ever really able to recover his forces from the casualties at Guilford Courthouse. In Yorktown, Virginia, Cornwallis ultimately surrendered on October 19th of 1781. We're going to talk briefly about the aftermath of all this and also about how this battleground became a national park after another brief word from one of the awesome sponsors who keep us going. So in the end, the Patriots won the Revolutionary War, and the former British colonies in North America became the United States. While today this is definitely framed as a victory in the United States, at the time, not everyone was actually happy about it. There were lots of people in the colonies who didn't want to be independent in the first place, as well as some who were on the fence and came to support the British after their own lives and livelihood were affected by the war. Many of the enslaved Africans who had fought in the war after being promised their freedom for doing so were ultimately re-enslaved, and some of them were then sent on to work on plantations in the Caribbean. This included many of those who had fought for the British, who the Americans expected to be, quote, returned as their, quote, property. Overall, not many people who were promised their freedom actually wound up being freed after the war was over. And this continues to be a huge paradox in terms of the revolution. The philosophies driving the Patriots were about equality and liberty, and the Declaration of Independence itself has the whole bit about it being self-evident that all men are created equal. However, not even enslaved Africans who had risked their own lives fighting for this cause were considered citizens rather than property after the whole thing had blown over. Native American tribes were also dramatically affected by the Revolutionary War. There were a lot of different tribes in what would become the United States, and these encompassed a huge range of cultures and languages and beliefs and priorities, really. Many of them had sided with the Loyalists, hoping that the British influence would slow down westward expansion in the colonies. Native American casualties were particularly high in the war, in part because they were often made explicit targets in the field of battle. But in addition to that, alliances that had existed between various Native peoples were broken afterward as their members fought on opposite sides. The most prominent example was the Iroquois Confederacy. Four of its member tribes fought for the British and two fought for the Americans. So there was a lot more going on in all of this than just getting the right to self-govern. In terms of the park, eventually the city of Greensboro was named for Nathaniel Green. Then in October of 1886, lawyer David Schenck, who was fond of studying the battlefield, decided he wanted to buy it. He formed the Guilford Battleground Company, which secured a state charter. And then the Battleground Company got to work preserving the site and building monuments to commemorate the battle and the war itself. This continued over many years. And then on March 2nd, 1917, the federal government passed legislation that named it Guilford Courthouse National Military Park. It was the first such park commemorating the Revolutionary War. 
This work, building monuments and doing preservation, continued for many years. And then in March 2nd, 1917, the federal government passed legislation that named it Guilford Courthouse National Military Park. And this was the first national park commemorating the Revolutionary War in the United States. The quote on the monument of Nathaniel Green, which were words said by George Washington, is, quote, It is with a pleasure which friendship alone is susceptible that I congratulate you on the glorious end you have put to hostilities in the southern states. And that's the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Fantastic. I feel like like maybe now my grandfather would be less disappointed in me for forgetting (laughs) literally everything he told me about it on some trip when I probably really wanted him to take me fishing instead. Or get candy. It's always good. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a bit of listener mail for us as well? I do. This listener mail is from Jillian, and it is about our recent episode about Calamity Jane. And she says, Dear Tracy and Holly, first, let me thank you for your podcast. It's what I listen to while I will take my dog, Bruce Wayne, for our daily walks. I love listening to it, but if I'm being honest, Bruce Wayne doesn't seem to care. Insert joke about old dogs learning new history here. I've attached... (laughs) Two photos of Bruce Wayne because he is adorable. Yes, he is definitely adorable, and Bruce Wayne is a great name for a dog. I'm all for the increase of episodes about women. Please keep up the good work. I do have a tiny note to add for your Calamity Jane episode. I was an undergrad in South Dakota, and what I learned from living in the state, as well as from a few sociology classes, is that the preferred name for the Native Americans in the area is the Oglala or Lakota, Dakota, or Nakota nations, not the Sioux Nation. The term Sioux comes from slang combining Chippewa and French and has a derogatory meaning of serpent. There's an article from the Lakota Country Times about the history of the name here. Take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. I'm white and certainly not an expert. But especially when talking about current events, it's more culturally sensitive to use the nation's dialectical name when discussing these groups. A little more information can be found from a North Dakota Studies article here. Uh, And then finally, she gives us two suggestions for future episodes. One of them is about the General Slocum, which is a story that is very similar to a previous episode about the sinking of the Sultana. So, uh, Jillian, maybe listen to the Sultana one to kind of tide you over, (laughs) because they are very similar stories. Um, I did some digging after getting this email, because we, we try to make sure that we are talking about people the way they would like to be talked about. And I actually found a huge, huge spectrum in terms of how various uh, tribes that would have once been called part of the Great Sioux Nation actually talk about themselves. And some did use the word Sioux and some did not. Um, And uh, it seems like, from my similarly non-expert point of view, even having like looked into things and, and read a lot of personal accounts and tried to get people's personal perspectives on it, um, that when it comes to like the giant umbrella of all of these tribes, there is still a lot of discussion about like the Sioux Nation as a huge thing. Uh, but when when we're talking about individual tribes, it's definitely a lot better to talk about their individual names rather than the sort of Sioux umbrella that was applied and then used in government uh, government negotiations uh, with the tribal peoples. Um, it's definitely not a case where we could have just not used the term Sioux at all because that was the term that was part of Supreme Court cases and stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, this is a case where there there seems to be a lot of different perspectives and points of view, and a lot of them are uh, very dear to people, obviously. So if 
you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. Do you like Instagram? We have a brand new Instagram. It is at MissedInHistory on Instagram also. We also have a Spreadshirt store, which has coffee mugs and T-shirts and all kinds of other cool stuff. So if you want to learn lots more things about history, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. There is a whole history section full of all kinds of interesting articles. And then there's also MissedInHistory.com, which is our website, where you can find show notes and an archive of every episode we've ever done and lots more cool stuff. So lots of things to do at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>